Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series with myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talk series here at the Abbey. For last orders at the dockside, playing out in the Abbey stage, I asked writer Neve Gleeson to take over at the helm for a series of mini podcasts about life in the docks. You won't hear Neve's voice within these recordings. We decided to let the dockers and the docker's daughter do the talking. And talk they do. About a way of life, of a time gone by, of hardship, of friendship, of family and friction. All the good, the bad, the long and the short of it. Enjoy this podcast. My name is Paddy Daly. I worked on the Dublin Docks Deep Sea. I was 16, a little over 16 when I started, and I wasn't alone in that. An awful lot of, of the guys started when they were 16. The reason why they were 16 and not any other age was you got your insurance cards when you were 16 years of age. And because my family, but a lot of other families, were big families. You know, you could be talking seven, eight, nine in, in the families. So, especially if the father had died and he happened to be a button man, then if you were the oldest boy there and you weren't 16 and you couldn't start, you couldn't wait for the day to come when you would get your cards and uh, you got your button. And then you had to go down to the docks inside the, the point gates. Um, when you went inside, it was, it was a little bit frightening, all right, because there were so many men gathered around. Uh, as a matter of fact, for someone that wouldn't have been there before or had never experienced it, when you got to within any kind of distance, we say 40 or 50 yards, you would see this big pall of smoke coming up. And as you got closer then, you realised, because you could see the gathering there, it was guys smoking. And you'd be forgiven if you thought like there was a fire <laughs> and you weren't running for the fire brigade. But I mean, this was the kind of things that fascinated you. And then the frightening part of it was that if you had, if you had, a, if you had people there that were relatives of yours, you were fairly all right, because they would show you where to go, they may have had a word with the foreman that, you know, he's a, he's a friend of ours or he's a, he's a relative. And the foreman, perhaps, your father might have worked in that company because there were different companies. And they would say, well, this is Johnny Riley's or Billy Riley's or Joe Plogg's uh, son. Oh, is it, you know, so they'd make him aware. And they, of course, with that amount of men, that gathering, you could forgive the guy standing on the stand if he couldn't see it. So in order that that wouldn't happen, the, your uncle or whatever he was said, I would stand behind him. So, you know, now you will know the guy, the young lad. If the guy, your relative behind you, if by any chance he thought that the guy on the stand, the foreman, wasn't picking you up, he would then have his finger and point, you know, which of course would be over your head. And he would be doing this, him, him, you know, he's the guy. And as a result of that, a, a saying came out. The, when, when the young lad would go to the ship, they would say something maybe about who was that guy or something. And they might say to you, the new guy, you know, they'd say, a hole in the head. Apropos this, you know, <laughs> and uh, but it was all it was in good fun. It wasn't nasty. 
The only part that I felt when I went down the first day, I remember I was, you know, guy, you, you Paddy Daly, you know, so I said, right, um, I'm walking out, so you have to go through the crowd to get to, the, inside the, in, just at the bottom of the stand, there were the steps to get up to it, but at the bottom of the steps, the office clerk would be there, and you had to hand him your card, you know, and he took that. But as I was walking through, the guys, they say, Jesus sake, he's hardly out of fucking school, you know, like, and uh, he should be in short trousers, especially, I was smaller than the normal guys were very big six-footers, maybe. Funny enough, I, I always felt that they had a point, because here I was, here, here were they, if you like, 20 years on the docks, and here I was, as they said, just out of school. And because I had a button, or I got my father's button, I had priority over those men. They had 20 years, and I had about 20 minutes <laughs> standing in the rear, and I got a job in front of them. So I wasn't going to pass up on that, but however, at the same time, I could appreciate where they were coming from. And I always thought that that was, I, I, even to this day, I felt that the button system, it wasn't as good as it was made out to be. Certainly, I'd have to concede immediately that it was better than what went before, because what went before was straight out of a horror picture. Some of the things that were done and the graft and the extent of it was, was really horrible. And the way men were treated was horrible. And they were treated that way because the people picking them out and giving them the job uh, just exercised their power, if you like, or abused their power, would be more correct. And um, to that extent, the companies didn't, you didn't work for a company, if you know what I mean. Like, you see, you didn't relate your, your job with the company. And funny enough, the company very often wouldn't know. If you worked for them for 20 years and something happened, an accident or whatever, and they said, that was John Joe Bloggs, it wouldn't be unusual for the chief executive or general manager to say, who's he? The and the fact was that he worked for the company for 25 years. And the people that run the place didn't even know his first name. Now, what the docker would say to you, if you were in the canteen, we say, or I would say, where are you working? Or who are you working for? You would say, Kevin Kelly. Or you would say, Willie Downey. You wouldn't say George Bell, because he was the guy that hired you, and he was the guy fired you. So your obligation to, or, or if you like, the fact that you wanted to keep a job, <laughs> or get the best kind of job, you're going to be very nice to Willie Downey or Kevin Kelly or whatever. A lot of Ring's End men, you see, would have orientated around that particular uh, man because he would know them and they, they knew the job and they knew the work that he would be doing and they were very good at it. Uh, when you talk about Ring's End men, you see, as a North Side man, I'm probably able to talk about the good part of the South Side man. But the fact was, that these men worked on the river. They, they fished on the river. And if you go back, they go right back to the pirate days. 
go back to 1600s. But I'm just trying to bring out the fact that the Rings End men knew more about the river. They knew more about what happened to the river. For example, if I done something, you're the foreman, and I did something on your end, or I said, no, I'm not doing it, or something, or F off, or whatever. The next day, naturally enough, your job was finished, so you had to stand in again for a fresh ship. So to make you aware that he was the boss, he would what they termed down the docks as left you on an island. And how that operated was, let's say you were on spot X, he would pick everybody, even ones that he wouldn't normally pick. <laughs> the reason they got their job was because they were standing beside you. <laughs> uh, he would pick everybody from around you. And suddenly you would <laughs> say, you know, I work for them. Why is he not giving me a job? And then, of course, memory clicks in. That's because of yesterday. Now, it, it wouldn't mean that you're left out forever. It was the chastising. And the extent of the chastising depends on the... Um, the offence, if you like. They, they'd say that the, you know, the punishment had to meet the crime and all that kind of stuff. And you could be left out maybe for a week or you suddenly realise that the punishment must be, it must be lifted and he would be back there. But they did have great power. I remember non-button men, for example, the guys are really pity. And it was an unfortunate situation, that non-button thing. But they would say, that, you know, men that had 10, maybe 11, 12 kids, this guy had a power to see whether they had a good dinner or not. And I don't think they saw it like that. And if you did talk like that, <laughs> Jesus, you know, you were off the wall, there was something wrong with you. It was very, very unfair. Men were humiliated, you know, it was very degrading. The extent and the abuse that they exercised with that power, Jesus, it was really, it was really terrible. You, you found out what the political situation was in that particular country. We knew more about the Hutus and the Tutsis and all that from the, the West African ships that was coming in. And Indian ships, for example, we, we realised, we knew more about Gandhi and stuff like that and, and the Muslim situation and the Hindu situation. And, and, and you learned, believe it or not, you learned more there than you would from the papers or the radio. You, you know, it, to that extent, you were educated. We knew things before there were, if you like, in the general public. We, we, would, have, we would have knowledge of it. And when people were, you know, expressing something happened, we'd say, no, it didn't. We, we knew about that last year or something like that. So you did get a good education in that regard. It was very good. You worked coal and the worst kind of coal. I was unfortunate enough. I didn't, you know, fella said you worked coal. I did. I only worked coal because I had to. The coal was Welsh steam coal, which was horrible shit. Big chats of coal, big lumps. Dirty, it wasn't washed, nothing was, it wasn't even watered down. But this was for our National Railway, CIE at the time. But they then, to, if you like, complement that, they had these blocks, which was approximately the size of a nine-inch cavity block, you know. These blocks were, were pitch blocks, and it was a way of getting rid of the slack of the coal and what someone came up with the idea if you can make a concrete block by compressing it into a mold and it comes out 
Then what they did was they used the coal slag and they mixed it with the pitch and it was the adhesive that bound it together. And what you saw when you opened the hatch, you, you got in and you had to pick these blocks up and throw them in the tub and that sounds great. But there was just one thing wrong with it. When pitch, when that, when that dust, it would, the only reminder I could, the only thing I could compare it to, if you ever work with caustic soda, even though you don't, if you like, actually put it on your face, you can imagine guys in tubs, the big bucket, they're throwing them into the tub and there's dust everywhere. The only thing wrong was that you had to go very fast because every, every two minutes this tub is in and out. You better have that tub full because if you didn't, there was an expression called a drag and you didn't want, you know, you didn't want anybody to think you weren't able to keep up your end, if you like. So some men went overboard about that. They were fanatical. It didn't matter if there was an accident that caused the drag. They would go, you know, and they were known as dread the drag. You know, they dread the drag. But, but anyway, when, when you were sweating, naturally enough, this dust landed on your face. Now, even if there was no sun around, it started to pinch you, just like it was kind of caustic soda pinching your face. Now what happened was this, to try and stop the dust from landing on the skin, the boys would get a lady's nylon stocking and bank robber style, they would pull it over their head and then put their cap back on, you see? But there was a snag, you see, they are porous. I mean, they, it still got through. And the like of me, for example, that was fair skinned, when you were then finished, you take your cap off, and when you were taking the stocking off, some of the skin off your cheeks came off with it. And then you see some of the, some of the dust that you were on the stocking would fall onto the flesh. And it was absolutely, it was dreadful. And it was very bad for your eyes. And on one occasion, I went over with three men. Well, I just went with them because or they dragged me over. They were from that side of the city and they said to me, come on, we're going into Patrick Dunn's. And I'll never forget the doctor saying to me, um, you're a young man. If you don't stop going to them, you will be blind, I'm telling you. And, you know, look at your skin and all the rest of it. They gave us cream and all the rest of it, of course. But you lost work very often. Like, if you were that bad, you couldn't go out for work. So, to try and keep in the good books, if you like, you went to these jobs, even though it was so bad for, you, for yourself. Yet, the contradiction to that is that people would kind of push and shove to get a job at the blocks because it was quicker and it was about money. You could finish a block boat in the day where if it was the after hatch of the header or the fern, uh, what did she carry, about 1,100 ton, um, it would be a dinner hour the next day, whereas you could get the same money in one day at the, at the blocks. So it was lucrative, but it was horrible, and I mean horrible. Asbestos came, because it's very light, it's, it's, it, it's, not, it's not a powder or anything else, it's in small little flakes, if you like, to put it like that. Um, but probably with the benefit of hindsight, we know just now, today, how horrible this stuff is. They had them in these, to get some kind of weight, 
they put them into huge bags and the dockers call them palliasses. And the reason for that is a palliasse, in actual fact, is what was used way back in the day as a, a, a mattress. You put this bag and sometimes it was several bags stitched together and you, they filled them, the people had no money, they filled them with straw and that was your mattress, if you like. So because it looked like that, the bag, they would say palliasses. So that's just giving you the size of these bags. Now, the problem was that if the bag stayed sealed, there was no problem because it, whatever, even the, how bad it was, it was contained within the bag. But that's not what actually happened. What happened was some of the bags would get damaged and it would have a hole in them in the bottom and some of them would get ripped because they'd come from a railway in South Africa and then they were down the docks and then they would get loaded from the docks into the ship and then we'd be taking them out of the ship, you know, and all of this kind of stuff. But the harm part of it came. As you know, the ship was discharged by crane. So if you're in the hold of a ship, you make the hoist up, you put the bags into a rope, a sling, you tie it off, and you put the sling onto the hook of the crane and he in turn lifts it up out of the hatch. Now, these ships were deep. They could be 40 feet down, you know, to, to get to the bottom. So when the crane man is told by the singer out to lift and the bottom bags or the side bags are ripped, this stuff would rain down just like snow. And I used to say the killer snow, you know, and I didn't know what I was talking about. But because of the way the cleanup was done. That's why I assumed there was something terribly wrong with it. I didn't know what was wrong with it. But I thought, um, I mean, these guys, when it come to tea break or bureau, when they would get up out of the hatch, I mean, they had flat caps, as you know, the docker. So when he'd get up, he would be white or he would be blue, you know, blue or white, whatever it was, the colour. Uh, he would take his cap off and he would be, to, to make himself look a bit respectable, he would bang his cap off his legs and make himself look, you know, clear off the stuff. But the fact was, it, that's how dense, and that's, like, when, when, when you try to compare something, in the custom house docks, uh, not, not at that time, but very shortly, not too far off that, it was realised when asbestos was now becoming known. They realised the OPW now, but it was the Board of Works then. They realised that the pipes in the basement had been lagged with this, you know, the, the lagging is kind of a rope, was made out of, for insulating, was made out of uh, asbestos, naturally enough to keep the hot pipes hot, naturally. But um, when that happened, anyone, near that vicinity, <laughs> evacuate, get everybody out. And then I used to think, Jesus Christ, evacuate somebody because of something happening down in the basement and they could contain that more because it's in rope and they put it in a bag. And then you, you try to envisage what was happening to these men. Now, I, I would, if I was doing forward, I'd say to the gang, if they were finished, um, okay, go to hatch, whatever hatch they were going to, okay, Paddy, and they would go off. But you see, because I'd still be up on the deck supervising, if you like, um, I would notice then the gang, the, the crew, coming along 
to clean up. Well, in normal circumstances, they would have brushes and shovels and sacks, you know, or, or they had these big canvases that they'd put in the centre of the empty hatch and then they would into heaps and throw it into this. And then when that was finished then, they would bring up the whole lot up onto the deck, you know. And that's the normal way to clean up uh, timber and anything that was there. But when they were doing an asbestos ship, that was totally different. I noticed these guys coming along and they had these industrial vacuum cleaners and they had suits on. No, they were only paper suits, I suppose, but nevertheless, they had them on. And they had these, uh, not, not a dust mask, it, it, obviously a mask for something more dangerous anyway than dust. Uh, what I didn't know, I must well tell you straight, I didn't know. I watched this for a while and the next time I was at one of them ships, they were mostly South African ship. It was the first time that I kind of got suspicious. Everyone's saying now, like, and when it was found out that it was dangerous, everyone knew nothing, yet someone had to know something. But it was never proved, I don't think so. But you're talking about um, the funerals and stuff. The, if, especially if a man died on the job, then the job stopped everywhere, not just at that ship. Every, all the work stopped. And men would be, you know, go to Glasnevin or whatever. And that's when you would hear an awful lot of the banter and stuff going on. You know, fellas walking along like, especially in Glasnevin, you know, the way it's tight and when there's a load of dockers to be walking along. And on one occasion, a man called Hector Bourne, you know, they were going through, and he saw the Republican grave was very well done, you know, it was kept very well. And Hector said, oh, Jesus, isn't that fantastic? He said, do you know what? If my mother was alive, she'd love to be buried there. Where would you, where would you hear that? Like, you, you just wouldn't. This was just off the top of their head. Like, you couldn't write this stuff. And if someone had have been clever enough to do a journal over, we say, 40 years, Jesus, I don't think anyone would believe it. Because the things that they said, um, like, the funny part about the funerals, or how the funeral was attended, the more the guy that was deceased was, uh, let's describe him as a character, the bigger the funeral was. And as somebody would say, if a decent man died tomorrow, there'd be only a handful of men at it, you know, which was true. And now I'm not going to name any people, but um, certain characters, like the church would be full and the people would be out onto the road, you know, attending it. But you could be sure then that if you went into any of the local pubs or whatever, if the guys, any guy that, comedian or whatever he was should have brought a tape with him you know because the stuff they would say like about the guy and all stuff like that not not in in a nasty way but you know they, they would have funny things they would say about him and stuff like that a friend of mine their colleague john walsh he talked about they went to a pub he gave him a good send-off and they, they were singing in the pub and seemingly the the the, the owners didn't want any singing the son of the owner 
didn't seem to be getting through to the lads. So he obviously sent for more help to father. And he recognised John, you know, and he said, you should know I don't allow singing. This other kind of wag heard what was going on. He said, you're supposed to be an honest man, I hear. And he said, well, now, listen, I want to say something. He said, you don't allow singing in the pub. Well, what's that going on there? He said, Barry Manilow was singing, you know. He said, you don't mind him singing. And he said, no. He said, he hasn't even bought one fucking pint. (laughs) Uh, They were just natural, you know, and it was really funny.